the theme of the, the session will be how do you make decisions? And how do you make decisions in, in, in your life? And I can tell you, uh, looking back in my life right now, I've had a lot, a lot of luck in my decisions. And if I was a little more thoughtful and a little more mature, I would have done things a lot more differently. So today, uh, when you hear from me, don't think I'm coming from a place of, of a high uh, achievement, uh, perfect ride, whatever, but, but from, a, from a place of, of total uh, and utter respect for the people that are being more thoughtful and more mature about their decisions. And that's one of the things that I really respect about the, uh, the program that you have here. Uh, incredibly value-based and very deliberate and principle-based. And the reason why we switch to having you be in our primary recruiting is because we're having such good luck with the alignment of what you stand for and the principles that you believe in and how you came here with the principles uh, that we have at DeVita. So that's the spirit to which we bring to it. Okay? Uh, so at, at DeVita, we talk a lot about the alignment of the person with the professional and the personal, that it is one, and that people try to separate those and that that doesn't work. And so the first decision I want to recommend you pay a lot of attention is who you marry. Uh, and so if you haven't married yet, really spend a lot of time on it. Because if you sit there and ask me still now, what is the most important decision in your life, there is nothing that gets close to who you pick as your life partner. It's got all kinds of socioeconomic consequences. It's got all kinds of uh, affection and, and groundedness, etc. Uh, geography as to where you live, how you raise your children, how you live in general. And while that is apparent, and you sit there and go, thanks for that insight. Uh, that was really, let me write that one down. It's important who you marry. Uh, one of the things that, that is sort of staggering is that we look at how most of us have made our decision as to how to marry, and it's pretty darn flawed. If you, if you look at it just analytically, and you say, when do we make the decision? At what point in our life do we do it? What are we thinking at that time in our life? And, and how do we pick our, our, our mate usually is not based in the journey of life, but rather in where we are in that moment in time. And we have a lot of social pressure. You start to go to 37 weddings, and you start to say, maybe I'm going to be alone. Oh, my God. And, and, and you start to feel all that social pressure. And, and so you say, maybe, maybe, maybe we are meant to be together. You're starting to look better and better every day. Uh, and, and so uh, just, just be careful and, and kind of start to see that. And you're going to note it here. As you are second years, you start to, and, and at the back end of first year, you start to feel a lot of social pressure. And the reason why you will feel the social pressure is because you respect the people around you. And so you say, my gosh, you're starting to get jobs and whatever, and you start to feel that. It's the same thing I found in marriage. And uh, I married uh, in, uh, incredibly poor, and that was one of the biggest blessings of all because I see as people get, get older, you start to get the complexity of, of, of money and wealth and what that means, implications of a life or the lack of wealth. Uh, and so one of the nice things about me is, is I got there with my T-shirt and, and a watch and, and a lot of debt. And so it, it, was, it was meant to be their true love or stupidity. Uh, but uh, one of the things that's really nice now is that my wife is literally my, my grounding. And anytime uh, when you start to become a CEO of Fortune 500, you get a lot of handlers. Uh, and, and they start to literally micromanage you along the way, uh, every step of the way. And, and you arrive and they, want you, they do it out of at a service excellence. They want you to do well, uh, but then you can lose your grounding. So my wife literally says, you know, the puppy pooped. Go pick it up and, you know, go take out the garbage and stuff like that. And all of a sudden you go, oh, this isn't like work. And, and, and that's the exact purpose. So uh, keep, keep, keep that in mind. 
Uh, this is a picture of my family. I always sort of say, hey, if, if you're going to say that your family is the single most important thing, let's talk about it and go to a place uh, that actually aligns with that, that actually rewards it, and that I can, as CEO, say I'm going to the soccer game or I'm going to go do X or Y with my family, and, and that it's a sort of hopefully serves as a role model so people can say it's okay to do that. And so, for example, my parents' 50th anniversary uh, celebration, the adult version, is going to be at the end of this week. Uh, in San Francisco, and I've talked to as many people as possible to tell them what I'm doing, uh, A, because I enjoy it, but B, I also want to make sure that people don't feel like they, they got to work all the time or tell me how busy they are or any of that kind of stuff, and so we're going to endorse it. This particular uh, picture with uh, Nicholas is, is the little guy on the right, Emily is the princess, and Alexander uh, there is, is uh, sort of warms me up a bunch, um, and, and it also reminds me of decisions, going back to decisions. Uh, I was uh, the senior vice president and ran a, a multi-billion dollar business in the East Coast. Uh, Kent Theory, that our, I just finished our dream house. It took us two years to build. Everything was custom, and by custom I don't mean fancy. Uh, it was just ours. And so we took no, no formal dining room. We had no formal uh, living room. But we had literally the largest mud room I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and, and it's because that's how we live, right? You, know, you come in and you've got all the equipment, all the stuff, and we put a refrigerator there because everybody goes in and out. And everybody thought it was a little weird until they said, well, that's kind of how we live. Um, anyway, we did all that. And, and, and uh, before we moved in, Kent Theory, our CEO, called me and said, uh, you want to be president of the company? And, and I said, yes. He goes, you've got to move to Denver. And it was like, OK. So I thought about it, uh, did your typical decision matrix. And one of the things that I, I failed to consider was how these four, uh, the impact that that would have. Of course, I considered it, but I just didn't put the ramifications. And then w once you start saying, OK, I'm the president CEO, I'm so happy. And I almost, almost uh, went home empty one day to a house that was empty because they were so miserable. So just keep that in, in mind as your career aspirations and, 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 and things in life. The things that matter will usually never be in the bank. So I'm going to tell you our story. Uh, I joined Total Renal Care uh, back in 1998. And so just so you put yourself in the seat, uh, because it's important to put ourselves in the seat at the decision time, 1998 is when the internet bubble is going crazy, uh, and everybody is rushing to the internet. And I'm in a seat just like you, except in Boston, and, and I'm sitting there, and, and I tell my wife, I am so stressed out because I don't understand how these internet companies are going to make money. And every single person is going there, and, and I don't understand it. And she goes, well, if you don't understand it, don't go there. Trust yourself, blah, blah, blah. So I went, uh, and I joined this company that uh, was called Total Renal Care. And now you get a little sense of what it was. Uh, <laughs> that was a code name. Uh, it, was, it should have been called a Titanic, but uh, that would have been a little too obvious. Uh, and so I joined uh, what, what I thought to be a growing company. It was a Wall Street uh, sort of darling. Uh, the, the company went public in 1995. The stock was at 2, went to 42. I actually joined on the 52-week high and got my options granted that day. Uh, and, and, and because I wanted to be an eager beaver, I didn't take the summer off. I didn't travel. I started. And all the people that took the summer off got their options at 39, which really made me proud uh, of my decision making uh, uh, there. And so, but you, you get the gist. Uh, I joined a company that was there. There was high growth, et cetera. I saw the shell. I saw the big, uh, beautiful ship, the Titanic. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden, we, we hit the iceberg. And so what happened there? It was a lot of roll-ups. 
roll-ups on top of roll-ups on top of roll-ups. And the story sold really nicely, and the stock kept going up, but there was no engine behind it. Okay, so one of the big things that I'm going to give you as a piece of advice is uh, you're going to get paraded around these companies, and you hardly ever get to go to the engine room to see if there's an engine. So you fall in love with a beautiful ship, and you're like, that is amazing. And then all of a sudden, you're like, whoa. So uh, a year into it, the stock was at two. Again, uh, I joined in the 52-week high. It's not a good trend. Uh, <laughs> my buddies are calling me and making jokes out of the name of my company. It was called Total Renal Care. I'll, I'll put it to your imagination as to what they called it um, uh, because I was advised not to use that word anymore. Uh, but it was another part of the anatomy. How's that? And, and, uh, and so I'm sitting there, and they're saying, why are you still at that company, and what are you doing? And, and, and the reality was I should have left, uh, but I made a deal with someone that told me, hey, uh, we need you here. And, and if you're going to come, and you're going to find out that it's bad and leave, just leave, because it's bad. So we'll, we'll spare you due diligence. It's really bad, uh, but we need you here. And it was accounts receivable. And I said, oh, my God. If I get stuck in accounts receivable the rest of my life, what a mistake this is. And, and so I made a deal with the chief accounting officer. We're still best friends. Uh, best friends, too exaggerated. We're still really good friends. He moved. Uh, and just so you know, he's a CEO of another uh, company. And the reason why we stayed so close together, even though we competed at times, is because the, the principles that he upheld and the principles that I upheld. Uh, so I should have left, but I didn't. Uh, and, and then we had no CEO, no COO, no general counsel. No CFO, okay? And everybody was leaving. And so I was in, a, in, in the seventh floor, and we had a, several hundred people. By the end, we had four people and a lot of plants. And so when, when you start thinking about your decisions, you're like, I am just such a loser. My wife is pregnant. Uh, and again, everybody's inviting me to Napa Valley and then blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I can't go. I can't afford it. And so, um, but then came uh, into our lives, Kent Theory, our CEO and chairman now. And what he brought, we went on a retreat, and, and we started talking about, I was so excited. I told my wife, we're going to talk about how we're going to resolve this thing. We're going to get the P&L back. The, I, I hear this guy's amazing. And we go on a retreat, and they hand out a sheet, and it's got a bunch of soft words, like principles. And I'm like, what the heck is he doing? And so he goes, we're going we're gonna to start talking about values. And I just remember going, oh, my God. Value doesn't pay bills. I know that much. And so we spent three days talking about the kind of company we were going to build. And I'm going to be honest with you. I left, and I said, this guy's totally nuts. And so I started to be one of these people that was the smartest guy in the room uh, mentally. And I said, this guy doesn't get it. And I started to join with all my uh, MBAs uh, buddies and going out to lunch and talking about how silly all the things that he was talking about were, and, and about some of these attributes, the, like what, what intangible things it was. And then uh, one day when I was just about to be at my wit's end, uh, I was laying in bed with my wife. My wife is a speech therapy uh, therapist, and, uh, and I told her all this stuff, and she goes, you know what, why don't you just leave? She goes, but the one thing that I'm really confused at is you used to run your own company, Javier, and you had 100 employees. And you used to always talk about how frustrating it was that nobody, on average, wanted to own their life and, and make it a special place to devote your life to. And that you had to work so hard to make a cool place to work. It sounds like this guy's trying to do the same thing. 
I, you're stupid. I literally, like, I, you don't get it. I'm like, you're a speech therapist, okay? It's different. <laughs> I rolled over, and I was like, damn it, she's right. Um, I didn't tell her, though. Just don't, don't panic. I didn't, I didn't concede power. Uh, I, I literally, like, just sat there and said, Argh! Um, and, and, and that was the beginning of the journey. And so I started to change my ways and started to get really into it. And then, uh, and then one day, Ken Theory says, I want to uh, please come to my office. I'm like, I found out how good I am. Here comes the money. Here comes the promotion. And, uh, and I get to his office, and he sits down, and he says, hey, Javier, you've been doing amazing work. I'm like, keep talking. I'm listening. Uh, and then all of a sudden, he says, um, so on the business results, on a one to five scale, I gave you a five. And he said, but on the mission and values and what we're trying to do in the leadership style, I gave you a one. It's not sound like a promotion. Uh, it's clearly not sound like something good. And then he said, and I can tolerate the other way around, which is if you have a mission and value and a leadership that's aligned to ours and your business results aren't there, and I'll teach you how to get those. But I can't tolerate the other. So uh, we might be talking about separation package. I was like, oh, my God. And then you go through our values. You go service excellence. Integrity, team, continuous improvement. You're like, which which ones am I a one in? My God, like these are these are, and it was just the the spirit, the spirit of which I was managing and leading, was actually going contradictory to what we were trying to establish, and my teams didn't have that health, that trust, that friendship that we wanted to establish. Now we were we were killing it on business results, but it was not the kind of company that he wanted, and that was a big aha, and it was sort of the beginning of me seeing his intentionality on creating a special place, that he was willing to give up on business results for certain kind of a mojo. And he knew that putting me up sort of in town square would have that kind of an impact. And so that was the beginning of, of me changing the way I made decisions and the way I managed people that was really, really transformational for my life. So in most companies, you will see a mission and a values. You will see it on their boardroom. Ask around in the company. Say, I don't know you, close your eyes, what's the mission and values? Most people won't know it. It's just, it's just too rosy and too picture. But when you say provider, partner, employer of choice, simple, repeatable, and you know what it means. Okay, so we literally went out and measured it. And so that's one of the things, again, decision points, what, who, you're, who you're picking. At that time, our market cap was 400 million. We're now a $15 billion market cap. And so we've, we've done well. Uh, we, we've diversified our business. Our, our kidney care business has a lot of things within the kidney care, the $8 billion piece, anyway, from a, from a pharmacy to a lab to all kinds of things in between. Healthcare Partners is a transformational model for healthcare, which we basically take possession of the entire life and we manage the entire continuum, every single disease state of that. So the insurance company comes and says, I'll give you 95 cents of the premium that I got, and you take care of them uh, from the provider side. Uh, and then we have uh, International Paladina. Paladina is a model for the employer. Uh, so the employer gets a clinic on their campus, big employer. So we have one on our campus. And it's really good uh, for productivity, morale, and all kinds of things. Economically, it's not that exciting. But I can tell you it's really cool because the, 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 the level of engagement that you feel as an employee of, of, of how they take care of you on a panel of 150, my doctor knows everything about me. And so when I walk in, I don't need to introduce myself. They don't need to pull a chart. Javier, how you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, no, you're the CEO. No, it has nothing to do with it. Actually, they don't know it uh, until just recently. 
when they said, I can't believe you didn't tell us. And I was like, I'm just a patient. Dude, just take care of me. What are you going to do differently? Uh, I'm like, I, I actually feel a little weird about it now. Uh, you touching me now. What is it? You going to touch me differently? Um, so anyway, uh, so that's inappropriate, huh? It's, it's being taped. How embarrassing. Uh, anyway, but you see uh, that we, we, we've taken our, our model uh, global. And, and uh, we decided to go international uh, about four years ago, and we're now in 10 countries. And so one of these things is, is really cool. We don't believe that it will move our economic needle in the next five to 10 years, but we think in the next 15 years it will. Um, so there we go. And then people ask me, uh, oops, I guess it didn't make it. Uh, how did we grow the business? And the one thing that, that I would say is there's principles, and there's values, and there's talent. And that's the difference between DeVita and many others. We have not conceded that you go to work and get a day's check for a day's work. We say life is too, it's just too long. We got to get more out of life. So if you went to DeVita and you saw the programs that we have, we have a day of, of uh, thinking. Just pay day, we give you facilitated questions on what to think. We have the great outdoors where you go out on a, on a week with one executive and you go out there and you have facilitated thinking and you strenuous, strenuous outdoor stuff where you, where you team build and do all kinds of things. We have professional coaches. We have all kinds of things that say, hey, let's be a little more deliberate about our life. And so right now uh, we have about 1,000. Uh, the other thing that's, that's really kind of cool about DeVita is we only have 1,000 executives. We're $15 billion market cap and we have about 1,000 executives because the rest of them are caregivers. And so you can actually know your peers in a way that you wouldn't know in a normal Fortune 500 where there's 50,000 people all over the country, all over the world. And so it, it lends itself to different kind of relationships. And just so you get a sense, we have about 35 to 40 or so um, Harvard MBAs, 20-some-odd uh, Stanford. I might have got them backwards. And we're now in double digits with you and trying to grow that cohort. Uh, but we have, give or take, um, we're the largest alumni of, uh, of Bain and Company in the world, and we're like third of McKinsey. And we really scrutinize that cohort because we don't want people that are just PowerPoint gurus. Uh, we want the ones that are running from the PowerPoint, the, the ones that are literally said, uh, and, and, and if we don't get you within certain experience, we, we don't want you because all you've become is a power, PowerPoint master. Uh, and, and we think the world has is, is got too much of that. And so what we want is the people that say, well, they got the framework, they got the IQ, they got the rigor, they've got the partners coaching them to death, which is really positive, and now we want someone that wants to impact the world. And so we think that that's been the biggest difference between us and others. And during a period of over a decade, we've outperformed both clinically and financially all of our competitors every year for well over a decade. So when you start to think, is this an economic uh, story? It is, but it wasn't how it started. It started a principle-based, it started with a clinical base, and then the economics follow. All right, so I'll stop there for a second. Any, any questions? Because we're, we're, we're about to go into some of the uh, advice slash things that I'm experiencing as a CEO. Yes, sir. How do you how do you go about teaching someone who who you feel like can be very talented but probably needs to be a little more aligned with what the company is trying to do in the long term? Yeah, I think that that, that almost everybody's got the music in their soul, and so what we got to do is just bring it out in them. 
And, and so we, we have no idea of what your background was or how you grew up or, or you know, we have a bunch of diversity. But once people see that this, the, the, the intentionality of which we're going about it, it's, it's pretty easy. And we have an analogy, you either cross a bridge or you don't, right? And so at some point, we say you don't have to do it day one. You don't have to do it six months into it. You don't have to do it a year into it. But at some point, you say either this kind of an approach speaks to you or it doesn't. And you got to opt out or opt in. Because if enough people stay on one side of the bridge, it just never happens. And so we, we, we have that vernacular that says, look, come in. Uh, you come in as an employee. Eventually, hopefully, you, you think of yourself as a teammate. And then you graduate into feeling a citizen of the village. And, and no one says, oh, you're a citizen and you're not. You know, it's just sort of how you feel about it. Uh, we have some what people think of as silly chants. Uh, you know, when we say one for all, what do all people say? There, there we go. One for all, all, all for one. one. You know, and people say, oh, that's silly. Well, guess what? We have 60,000 people all over the country, and they can't leave the floor. And we have to communicate that we truly believe in team. And they get the one for all. And, and, they, and we have one for all moments, right? We have a federal subpoena, right? And they asked for executives that made the mistake. And we said, did, did they in their heart and their intention, and when they had the data, what did they look at? And we thought that they had pure intentions and made a, a, a decision, whether it was a wrong, right or wrong, but they had the right intention, and we stuck together. It was a one-for-all moment. And we have a lot of those. And so people are looking when it's actually tested, not when it's really cool and fun to walk around and say one-for-all. And so um, to answer your question, there is no right formulaic thing. It's just continuing to, to express sort of open arms and if people continue to go like this, then you say you got to opt out. Thank you. All right, I'm going to keep going. Um, CO challenges. I do believe that COs have very unique perspectives, and I never thought that. I was the number three guy for a long time, and I was in the meetings with the CEO a lot. And then and I'm like, oh, you know, he gets paid a lot more than me, but I don't think he does a lot more than me. Uh, no, just kidding, Kent. Um, <laughs> Uh, one of the things that you find out is that, that there is a very unique feeling about being the goalie, that, meaning that if it goes by you, it's a goal, uh, that you're sort of the, the last defense on a lot of things. And, and in particular, there's some like media, for example. You can have professionals in a very nasty situation when something happens, when people die or something like that. Amazing professionals telling you what to do, but they have totally different views. Go aggressive right at the story. Don't go aggressive at the story. Go uh, have the interviews. Don't have the interviews. Legal risk, no legal risk. And so you are the goalie. You get to make the call whether uh, you go aggressive, offensive, defensive, etc. And so there are many examples like that, and they usually happen in high, high stress areas where people just kind of lob and say, "This is my opinion. This is my opinion. This is my opinion," because they know that they don't have the ultimate decision. And so this is one of those things where you almost want to prep. Regardless of who your CEO, who your general, whatever field you're in, and you say, if I had to make the decision, how would I have done it, and then see how that would have fared out. I still remember when I did uh, business school cases, I remember saying Kodak should keep their pictures because everybody's going to want to touch a picture. Well, obviously, I was wrong. I remember MTV. Uh, M, for those of you, you're too young, but M stood for music. Uh, you know, and, and I said, how can it be called, how can it have all this other stuff? It's M for music. So I said, don't diversify. So I remember all the mistakes I made because if you really pretend 
then you say, God, I get it wrong all the time. And so I better keep honing in and honing in and seeing what I did wrong. And so, so keep doing that. Uh, number two, no one teaches you, uh, or at least no one taught me, I should say. I wasn't prepared for, for some of the decisions in IT. The capital required in IT now and the separation between strategy and IT is really tough, in particular in healthcare, where we're doing a big modernization because healthcare is one of those places when we've all consumed healthcare where you get there and you're like, why are you asking me the same thing again? My insurance card, my name, my date of birth, all that kind of stuff. And so we're doing a big sort of transition into IT, but these decisions are 50, 60, 80, 100 million dollars. And you know, you wake up in three, four, five years whether you made the right decision or not. So they take a, a quite, a, quite about a time. And you start talking about things like security and, and uh, personal security and personal data is worth more than a credit card information, just so you get a sense. Because they do Medicare fraud with that information. And by the time the government finds out that they already dispersed the checks in cash, that entity is shut down. So you start to make decisions on whether you, you are more like a bank on security and other things, and you're very, at least I was very ill-equipped. So try to start sort of saying, what areas, if I had the whole enterprise, do I need to start getting well-versed? And how would I make that decision, which is really uncomfortable? And by the way, my IT uh, head has very good intentions, but they have agendas, too. And so those are the sort of the tough things on, on the CO uh, slate. Number two, three, is I think um, there are very few people in the organization that think of profits in 2019. Uh, that most people are talking about next year. If, if, if you as a CEO are worrying about your profits in 2016, the odds that you miss them are really high now. And so I, I, it would be unfair to say we have two th 2016 in the bank because there's huge gives and takes in any given year. But at the end of the year, the CEO has got to be looking at, uh, number one, uh, protecting the profit pool, number two, growing the profit pool, and then number three, is getting new sources of profit. And so this is the one where you are in a unique consumer and you have to be worrying about four years down the line, especially as your organization gets big. When you start being, uh, my division now, eight to nine billion dollars, just to move the inertia and to get, make sure that everybody is moving in the right direction, you gotta start really early. Uh, number four, your capacity really starts to get stretched. Everybody wants a piece of your time. Regardless of whether it's good, bad, or indifferent for the organization, they have very good intentions. But you really have to reinvent your capacity plan and how you think of your time. Constantly and constantly and constantly. And one of the, the smallest pieces of advice that I will have for you is my wife and my assistant hook up twice a week and inter in interchange stuff. What is non-negotiable from the business side, what's non-negotiable from the personal side. And so donuts with dad is really important for the little kids. And you know what? It's usually at 9.30 in the morning on a Tuesday. And so I happen to always be somewhere else at 9.30 on a Tuesday. But when you start to say donuts with dad's in the calendar and it's a non-negotiable and it's color-coded a certain way, you always make donuts with dad. And what ends up happening is that your relationship, your personal relationship starts to lose some of that friction that's like you were the only dad that didn't go with donuts with dad. And you, so you stop having that, and they start feeling you present because in the events that your kids want you to be there or your spouse wants you to be there, you're there. And so I'm actually more present than people that have less demanding jobs because of DeVita and the way that they've taught me to think of capacity on a weekly basis and reevaluate and reevaluate and reevaluate. Uh, number five, uh, you start the owning keeping it fresh. And what does that mean? 
We've all been in relationships. We all are, are in relationships, friendships, and, and all kinds of relationships. It's hard to keep it fresh, right? And that's what people love about dramas and movies and love stories, right? You go there and, oh, my gosh, they fell in love, and they kiss at the end. And that was it. They're in love forever. No. The reality is that life started after that, right? And, 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 and the box of chocolates and the roses and the whatever get old. And you've got to start to do different innovation to keep a relationship going. It's the same thing in a company. If all we did is walk around all the time just saying one for all, and eventually you're like, okay, I got that one. Can you give me something else, right? And so the, the CEO is one of the only people that actually sits there at the top and says, okay, how do we want to communicate something at scale? And the best way to do it is in the trenches. So the people that come out of this class will create the innovation in their lanes and I will be walking around and say, wow, Elizabeth, you did an amazing thing. What was it? Well, I just did this, this, and this. I was like, great. Let's grab that and take it elsewhere. And so the innovation is happening from the talent. And, and what I have to do at scale is make sure that we keep it fresh, not only in one lane, but in the entire uh, neighborhood. And then sort of the last one is this, it sounds arrogant. It's not intended to be an arrogant. It's just sort of a matter of fact, is that you stop being normal to people. Okay, and you stop being normal to people on their eyes, not in your eyes. It might be in your eyes too, so you got to watch out for that. But I really found myself actually feeling quite humbled by the challenge, not because I'm a humble human being, I'm not, but because the challenge feels quite intense. And so you felt like unprepared to do a lot of decisions. And, and what ends up happening here is that when you go and you say, hey, can you help me out? You now help me out differently than you used to three weeks before I had the title. It's just an amazing thing. And you're like, remember me? We, we, we were buddies all along. Yeah, but now you're, you sort of make my decision on all my comp. And I view you somewhat differently. And it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre transition. I always thought that that wasn't going to happen to me because I'm really sort of a low-key kind of guy. I, I like humor and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, you find out that your jokes get kind of funnier and all those sort of things. You're like, uh, now it's really bad because I know that was a bad one, you know? And, 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 and everybody sort of giggles. Uh, and then you go, oh, man, I'm no, no, no longer normal. And, and that is a big thing. that You have to fight that inertia and fight it and fight it and fight it uh, because um, it's just not, not good. Any questions on this one? Comments? Yes. The capacity and management processes seems like it's a challenge at any point in your career. Was it difficult for you to say early on, you know, I'm just trying to rise up in the ranks. I just got to continue to make this, you know, one sacrifice until I get to that level, until I get to that level. Like, how do you turn that off? Yeah, I made a lot of mistakes. Around. I wish I would have been more organized and more deliberate is, is my whole thing. Everybody will always be fighting it, and it doesn't matter if you're a super busy executive or a non-for-profit worker or or you you know my wife that actually is a speech therapist she's everybody feels busy and it's just sort of the pace of society and so what I wish I would have done is just been more methodical and deliberate I find that just sitting there every Sunday I spend an hour thinking about my capacity and I cancel a lot of meetings reorganize shorten lengthen etc because when you start thinking like this one's not an hour meeting this is an important decision this is a three-hour meeting and I don't know why we have this recurring one that's been a dud for three weeks. Cut it. It didn't work. You know, and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. 
And so I, and, and then I literally talked to people and I said, why, why not I get invited to that meeting? Because you had no value. Okay, last time you whipped out your laptop and if you want to do emails, go do emails. Oh, okay, that's, that's some feedback. All right, well then you go into capacity and you stop, stop wasting meetings, right? You start to say, where am I getting something out of this meeting? Because I have to get something out of every meeting. And, I, and, and it could be relationship, uh, so there was no business content, but there's got to be something you get out of these meetings. And the only way I could do it is being very deliberate and scrutinizing the heck out of it. All right, uh, so now I'm going to go into some of the personal uh, sort of pieces of advice. And so management, you're learning a lot of management tools here. And I think of that as a professional skill set. What you're going to find out is that the, pro the professional world has a lot of these people. There are people that have this skill set all over the world. And if you think you're going to compete on just that, good luck. You're going to be in a very niche uh, organization. If you think you're going to manage people at scale, you've got to learn leadership. And leadership starts, in my mind, not professing to be right or wrong, with knowing yourself. Okay? One of the things that I really did poorly is knowing myself. And, and when you think about the time that you have here, the gift of time that you have here, and I was talking earlier to someone, I'm like, please don't spend so much time on your cases. I know that's going to sound weird, but you're never going to remember much of it. And you're like, what? Yeah, I know, it's expensive. Um, but, but the reality of life is you're, you're getting taught frameworks, you're getting taught how to think, you're getting taught how to work with others, and all these really incredibly valuable lessons. But the most important lesson has got to be knowing yourself, your strengths, your weaknesses, where you added value, where you didn't, how you think of things, uh, how you're feeling about your insecurities, your securities, how people feel around you, when do they feel good about you, when do they not, all those sort of things, that's where the real magic starts to happen. And in my particular case, I totally underinvested in that. I, wanted, I was so busy with my insecurities, making sure that I was liked and this and the other, that I stopped having moments of introspection or had very limited moments of introspection during my MBA because there's so much going on and you want to go see the next CEO, the next pub, and the free coffee you guys have at 10 a.m., which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, and, 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 and these things, and you're just bopping and bopping and bopping, and then you never freeze and say, like, my MBA is a success if what happens? If I know what about myself? If I spend how much time thinking about myself? So think about that because you have to know yourself to be a good leader. Number two, how you spend your time. I spent, I mean, if you ask me right now about my MBA, I'm like, gosh dang it, I wish I would do it all over again. The amount of time I spent doing cases is just ridiculous. And the stress that I felt over the case, I'm like, it was pass fail for crying out loud. How could I have felt so much stress? I mean, it was literally like, you know, where I went to school, it was one, two, or three. And 90% and, and get one or two. And it doesn't matter. I mean, if you get a three, you got to get a bunch of threes to get kicked out. You know, it's like, and no one asks you for your grades. But, but yet, for whatever godly reason, you got to get a one or two, you know? And, and so I spent too much time, and I, I look at, I, I would have gotten 90% of the value spending 70% of the time or 60% of the time, and I could have done so much more with my time. So I, I don't proclaim to know how you're spending your time here, uh, and you might be a lot more thoughtful and a lot more mature how you're investing in relationships, but if I had to do it over again, I'd be very, very thoughtful of what I'm spending my time, and again, going back to the grid of, it's two years from now, it's five years from now, it's 10 years from now. How do I grade my time here? 10 years from now. And I'm telling you, when I go back to my 15, 20 year reunion, 
one of the things that I get bummed out with my wife is my relationships were too thin. I mean, I know two or three people really well, and I love them, and I spend, you know, we meet every year. But after that, it's like, I don't need to come back, and, and that's not a good thing. I underinvested there, so I don't know where you're, where you're at. Uh, number three, run to the fire. Uh, what, what I mean by that is that most people uh, see fire, see problems, and they run. Okay, they say, that, that's a big, that's a big disaster. Watch out. Don't, don't go near that. Uh, you might lose something. Uh, as opposed to, actually, if you want to put your career on steroids and you want to go really much faster, you actually run toward the fire. And you say, there's a problem, and here's how I'm going to do it, and, and here's what I want to do. Almost every single thing that bumped up my career from outside the line was running to the fire. Going to accounts receivable, risking my career. Going to the worst operating group in the Northeast that had union problems and had visibility. Going to run IT when I had no business running IT. Now, along the way, you could actually get fired, and that's just sort of part of life. But I'd rather do that than just get in line and check off my box and do my two-year thing and expect that my career is going to be much different than everybody else's. And so one of my things is, is make sure that you measure your risk tolerance and that you actually go toward where there's a bit of risk and a little visibility because that's when you're likely to change your career path. Um, what are these? I don't even know what these are. Someone must have stuck these in there. Uh, oh, I just got a lot of white hair. Uh, my, my advice, and again, all this is very, very personal, is be very careful with social media. Um, studies are early, uh, but there's, there, there appears to be a very strong linkage between your time spent on social media and, and lack of happiness. And, and what I'm, I'm seeing a lot is that you're at some really cool event, and people are more worried about taking the damn picture and posting it than they are about enjoying the event. And, and a lot of people are so worried about their friends and, and putting the little thumbs up on the picture than they are about life. And so I get it. They're amazing tools. You can stay connected to others. But just uh, watch out for it because you're the first generation that actually has to live with it. And I think it's going to be a while before we figure out what the consequences are. And I know I sound like an old goat. Everybody said, don't do that one. I'm like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> uh, uh, and so now you're like, oh, crap. You shouldn't have done it. Uh, we, we started out with, uh, with, with this one, which is this is how we, we lead our life, which we, everybody that says, how do you balance your life, personal and professional, is I blurry the line. I just totally blurry the line. I want to go to work happy. I want to be happy with the people I work with, and I want to go home and be with my family. And so I, 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 I hugely recommend you not to concede that you're just going to go to work, have a professional persona, and a home persona, because it's just nowhere to, to live. Uh, and I'm, I'm wrapping up here. Um, we are maniacal about tracking our expenses, right? If you ask me, hey, where would you spend your money? Electric, this, that, the other, and there's the, what savings and taxes and whatnot. What if we grab some of that and, and use it in more in our inter, interpersonal skills? Who fills up my cup? Who gives me energy? Who do I want to be with? Um, all those sort of things. If we track them in the same kind of fashion, I think as a society we'd be much better. And so one of the things that, that I am doing now, and again, David has taught me this through the sort of management program, has been you grab some of the stuff you learn at work and you bring it home, like multi-year goals. I sit with my wife and say, what do we want to do? Because the stuff that you want to do in multi-years won't happen. Like we want our kids to be bilingual. We want our kids to be uh, really confident. We don't care about the A next quarter. 
Well, we care about them doing okay in school, but we don't sit there and you don't say, oh, I hope for the next five years they get all A's. No. You say, I hope they're kind. I hope they're generous. I hope they respect. And so if you don't do those kind of multi-year objectives like you do at work, you're unlikely to have that kind of result at home and vice versa. That there are a lot of things that happen at home that you say, I want to have dinner around the table. I want to have a trust. I want to talk about love. I want to talk about uh, being hurt. I want to talk about being alone, those sort of things, that you bring those to work. Because, again, if you have that kind of trust and if you have that kind of relationship at, at work, the odds that you like going to work go up by a lot. And then uh, just sort of end with this one, which is there in my, my book, there's people that suck the energy out of you. Uh, they're energy consumers. And we all know them. You just thought of them, actually. You're like, oh, yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. Uh, yet, you know, you got to go and say, how you doing? I'm fine. And you? Did you read the case? I, yeah, I started the case. You're like, oh, my God. Uh, and then there are people that just say, oh, my gosh, you know, let's go have a little fun, and then we'll do the case, and da-da-da. And they said the same thing, but just the way they made you feel. And I just find that the world, uh, I, I, you know, I literally get rid of the people that suck my energy away. Um, because life is just too short, and, and, and I like to be a happy person. So uh, I've I just been kind of that. And then um, at, at work, we do beliefs, and, and we talk about our personal beliefs because we think that it's really tough to get to know the, the people you work with unless you talk about your personal beliefs. I, I did 10 in front of 5,000 people, and you want to talk about feeling vulnerable and exposed. Uh, it's an intense thing. Uh, but I'm just going to share two with you. And one I'm going to illustrate through a social media kind of thing. Peyton Manning. Uh, I was at the game on Sunday. Uh, Peyton Manning uh, broke the record for the most NFL yards ever thrown by an, a quarterback. Total. Okay? Pre I think anyone that knows football would say he was a, he's been a great quarterback all his life. In that same game, he threw four picks and was pulled out of the game. And the entire stadium booed him. Okay? which I thought was a really sad thing. What is my point in my beliefs? The point of my beliefs is life is incredibly fragile. Respect it. Because this is a person that in the same moment was on top of the world, the stadium gave him a standing ovation. Four minutes later, they started to boo him. Okay? Now, that's something that social everybody would recognize. What I said in my personal beliefs, I didn't talk about Peyton Manning. I said that I have an emotional fear that and, and a huge guilt because I'm separated from my parents. My parents live in Mexico and I live in the U.S. And now they're getting older. And they gave me this great life. And I do think that life is fragile. And I am really, really nervous that one day they're going to call me and say something happened. And so I really try to make every time with them a memorable one. So that's uh, belief number one. And belief number two is this is uh, this summer. Uh, and and uh, I think I told you, my parents, uh, 50 years of marriage, uh, it's, it's this Thursday. And they said, since we can't get all the kids together because of school, let's do a summer event for the kids, and then we'll just do adults in the actual anniversary. Uh, we went down uh, Acapulco, which is where we grew up going to in the beach because we lived in Mexico City. And, uh, and my dad got really, really sick. And so I had taken care of everything, every detail, every piece of you know, catering, blah, 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 blah. And the day of the event, uh, he had to be flown off, and we didn't know if he was going to come back. Um, he drove, because he couldn't get back on a plane after his procedure, and drove back. The kids were, had been drawing and, and making letters and doing all kinds of things because we never thought that they were going to come back. And he walked in, and we were full of sand, 
and full of sunblock and all kinds of crap. There was no catering. We had canceled everything. And then we had the single most memorable, beautiful event. And it was just a reminder that amongst all this stuff that I come to tell you and, and, and you know, preach of being deliberate and being thoughtful, I got caught up in the stupidest things. And I had all these checklists about caterers and this and the other. And I got caught up in all that stupidity. And the reality was that the event went much, much better by just letting it happen. So just a reminder of, of what are we spending our time on, where are we spending our energy, because the things that matter um, are right in front of us. So that's it. Thank you so much. <laughs>